changing gears a little bit lately. On uh, February 4th, we were going through the book of Malachi, Old Testament book, and we stopped right there so we could do this series leading up to Easter about the, uh, the words of Christ that were spoken from him upon the cross. Uh, it's just a way to prepare our, our hearts as we were leading up to Easter. But today we're going to be picking right back up where we left off in the book of Malachi. And so uh, head that way if you get a chance. Uh, it's been about a two-month gap, though, which is a pretty big gap between two verses right here. Uh, but it's nothing compared to, to John Calvin, who spent over three years in exile away from the, the city of Geneva. And when he returned back to the city of Geneva, he, he picked right back up preaching from the very verse he had left off on uh, some three-plus years earlier. So two years, no big deal, or two, two months. Uh, so anyway, find this book. It's the last book of the Old Testament. The easiest way to get there, if you're not sure, is to find Matthew and just go backwards one book. Uh, and find chapter 2, where we'll be picking up in verse 17. But let me first give you a quick review. I don't expect you to remember it. <clears throat> Everything we have been going through, this book of Malachi is uh, this series of six disputes between God and, and, and his people, uh, Israel. And we've already looked at the first three disputes up to this point. Um, the first dispute was when the Israelites were accusing God of not loving them. Uh, and, and God responds to them by pointing them to his sovereign election of them as, as his people, as proof that he does indeed love them. The second dispute is the, showed that God showing that their, their worship is half-hearted and that the priests were committing this, this malpractice, and, and the Lord rebukes them for it. The third dispute is because God's people were, were being unfaithful. The, the men were divorcing their wives and they were marrying uh, new wives, pagan wives, and, and the Lord calls them to repent of this sin and he calls them to, to faithfulness. Today, though, we are looking at the, the fourth dispute and it begins in chapter 2, verse 17. So if you've got your, your Bible open, head over there and we'll begin to read. And as we read this, I want you to be thinking, what, what is the dispute? What's the problem here? <clears throat> so follow along. Malachi uh, chapter 2, verse 17. We'll read all the way to verse 6 of chapter 3. <clears throat> you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the Lord of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, reading the prophets is a strange experience for us. It is difficult for our 21st century American minds to understand. And, and this morning we are asking you to enlighten our minds 
so that we might grasp what this passage meant for those who heard it in Malachi's time, and so that we might uh, ask that you enlighten our minds so that we might know what it means for our lives today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Malachi begins by relaying this this message to Israel, and, and he says this, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And on some level, this might surprise us, because if you've done, spent any time reading the Psalms, you realize that they're full of these complaints, these, these worries, these accusations almost that are, that are levied towards God. And, and yet he never seems worried by them. Psalm 73 even asks questions very similar to the questions being asked here today. Uh, and, and yet the psalmist is, is taking these complaint, complaints, he's taking his fears, he's, he's taking these accusations even, and he's going directly to the Lord with them. And so there is a bit of a difference here. Here the, the Israelites are just broadcasting their complaints out loud. And they go as far as to make these assumptions of the Lord that are simply untrue of the Lord. They're, they're falsely asserting that evildoers are good in the eyes of God. <clears throat> and that God delights in these evildoers. It, it's an assumption that, that they've made by their observation of the world. It's an assumption that is absolutely contrary to what is true. God himself in Isaiah 5, uh, 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And then the second way that we see that they have wearied the Lord with their words is by asking this question, where is the God of justice? And by that they certainly mean he's nowhere. Um, it's an accusation, Absolutely. But it's, it's not addressed to God. It's, it's akin to someone who day, today who says, look at the evil world. Just look at the evil world. There's genocide and there's, there's children with cancer. There are drug lords that are living in luxury while those who are faithful are living in squalor. You, you can't seriously believe in a sovereign God when you look at this world, can you? I mean, that's a, a question for our day, but it was also a question in Malachi's day. It's been a question in every day between then and now. And the reason is that we have this sense that we just want justice, right? Right right now, this era of history, maybe than any other era in history, is is one where the masses are demanding justice across the globe. Our our generation has has picked up our our, our Twitter pitchforks and and will march until we get justice that we desire. We're outraged over abuses in the church, abuses in the government, abuses in educational places. We, we see leaders of business who are prospering through their selfish deceit, through their unsafe practices of all sorts. See, we observe a world and, and we can look at it and conclude, you know, it doesn't seem to matter at all if you obey what God says in his word. It doesn't seem to matter how we live at all, how we treat anyone. And there's this question then, you know, so, so what is God doing? Where is God? Why indeed does evil prosper? Why does injustice continue to go unpunished in the world? Shouldn't God do something? You, you might feel it even more on a personal level as well. If, you, if you've been wronged by somebody, uh, you know, injured by someone, uh, attacked by somebody, you, you, you feel it, you know, and they seem to be getting away with it. You're understanding injustice in a very personal way. Maybe, maybe you deserve the promotion. You're the one who actually did the work for it, and yet they're receiving this promotion. Maybe you built up this client base, and they're stealing your clients. Maybe you're being honest in your education, and yet you look across the aisle, and, and it's others that are cheating who are getting these A's in class. It would be very easy 
for us, you know, to, to, to boil everything down and, and, and ask, as many already are asking, if God doesn't punish the injustice we see, then what good is he? What use is God for us in this world? We might even want to join the Israelites in their accusations here. See, the rest of our passage, though, is going to answer this question to, to whether God does delight in evildoers. And, and where is he when injustice seems to be flourishing in the world? And we'll get there. Now, first of all, though, there's this question, right? Where, where is God? Where is the God of justice? Where is he? And you see that first word in chapter 3? Behold, that's what it is in the ESV. Uh, behold, it's the throwaway word, right? You almost skip past that and just see what's the content here. Uh, we, we just treat it like that. But that word literally means, here I am. I'm right here. That's God answering that question right off the bat. I, I, I'm not lacking. I'm here. I see it. I know it. I'm absolutely aware of it. And, and God didn't have to speak to his creation at all. And yet they ask these questions and here God stoops down and he begins to speak. And he says, I send my messenger. I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Well, who's this messenger? You might think it's, it's Malachi. After all, Malachi's name means my messenger. That would be a pretty fair translation. But Malachi is already the messenger in this moment. So God's not talking about Malachi, but, but a future messenger that's to come someday later. And, and this idea fits with the practice of the time. You see, kings would send their messengers ahead of them in order to, to get things ready, in order to prepare the place, in order to prepare the people to receive the king when he comes in his presence. Our dignitaries still do these kind of things today. They, they show up and they secure the place and they put everything in order so it's prepared. And, you know, in, in, in my life, every time I've ever had to sign a document, no matter where I'm at, the first thing I do is begin searching for a pen. There's never a pen anywhere. And so I start to ask that question, you know, am I allowed to sign this in pink marker? Uh, that's the kind of thing that goes on. But have you ever noticed, that if you've ever seen it, any of our presidents ever throughout history, when you see the video of them signing anything in the legislation, they don't look for a pen. They're right there waiting for them. The president's never had to sign legislation with a child's pink marker, ever. I mean, that's, that's what happens when someone goes beforehand to prepare the way. It's all prepared, and the messenger here is sent to prepare the way of the Lord. How many of you think you know who the messenger is at this point? You read enough into the New Testament. I see a few of you confidently, little finger. Um, yeah, it's, it's John the Baptist. <laughs> you get points. Uh, Matthew 11.10 tells us there, you know, Jesus is quoting this exact passage from Malachi, and he says, This is he whom is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will, prepare, who will prepare your way before you. The messenger is John the Baptist, this strange man who eats locusts and wears camel fur, fur you, know, his, you know, for his clothes. He's, and he goes and he prepares the way of the Lord and he does so by calling Israel to repentance. He's preparing them to, to hear from Christ. And so we've identified the first messenger in our, our passage, but there's another messenger um, in verse 1 as well, it is this, the messenger of the covenant. That's not the same messenger. And we know it's a different messenger because this messenger is said to possess the temple. It's his temple. We, we also know that this is no ordinary person. There's this, this form of parallelism in the wording of verse 1 uh, where these two lines really are referring to the same thing, mean the same thing of the same person, using different words, different imagery. And, and here the words are, the Lord who you seek are paired with the messenger of the covenant. 
It's referring to the same person. And all this quickly leads us, I think, to realize that the messenger of the covenant is, in fact, Jesus Christ the Lord. Because Jesus himself comes into his temple first as a baby. You might remember uh, in Luke when, when Simeon sees Jesus and he knows this is the Messiah. The Messiah has finally come to the temple. And Jesus again comes to his temple when he shows up and he, he flips over the tables and he's got the, the, the cord and he's whipping things. He's, he, he's sending merchants out. He is uh, setting things right in the Lord's house. The second messenger, the messenger of the covenant is the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture often speaks of our seeking justice in the world. You know, there's this call on Christians to, de to defend the, the oppressed, the powerless, the, uh, and, and such. But in this passage, this, this isn't about that kind of justice. And there's a place for preaching on that when, when the text calls for it. But this is about the justice that God brings. That's why in, in verse 2, in regards to Jesus' coming, we, we read this. It says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? In other words, be careful when you're asking God for fairness, when you're asking God for, for pure, true justice. I mean, think of your own life for a moment. Do, do you really want to see every lie? Do you really want to see every deception, every lust, every word of slander and gossip that has passed out of your mouth, every sin you've ever committed? Do you want to see that get what it deserves? We as sinners deserve death and hell. You know, it's this moment when you realize it's a lot like that, that movie, a, a Few Good Men, you know? You, you want justice? You can't handle justice. I mean, and there's a lot of a truth here. To, to demand pure justice is not a safe request, and yet it's a request that they have made, and, and, and we, if we're honest, have probably made that request as we look at the world as well. And so then when the Lord comes, he, he comes to do two works. That's what we're seeing here in this passage. The, the first work is to purify some sinners. In verses uh, 2 and 3, he compares this work to a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Uh, why a refiner's fire? Well, it's a refiner's fire uh, because a refiner's fire just doesn't just destroy everything, Right? Uh, not like a house fire who just burns everything up, everything valuable, everything important, uh, everything worthless all goes up together in a house fire. But, but it's not like that. A refiner's fire only burns up those things that are worthless, those things that, uh, that need to be removed in order to purify. This is the idea that they would take gold or silver and they would melt it and, and all the dirt and all the little sticks and all the impurities of other types of metal that are pretty much worthless uh, would either be burned out completely or they'd rise to the top where they could be easily removed. And the end result was, was a bar, or I imagine some bar-type shaped device, thing, of absolutely 100% pure gold. That's what the refiner's fire would create. The, the other image here is the fuller's soap. You're probably less uh, used to this one or understand this one. Uh, this was long before Tide Pods. Uh, back then, they had the fuller's soap challenge, and uh, parents warned their children against it. Just kidding, of course. Um, now, the idea here, though, with the fuller soap is that it's, it's something harsh. Don't think woolite. This is not the thing you're washing your sweater with. Uh, rather, fuller soap used harsh extracts of certain plants, and, and the process would remove the dirt. It would, it would take clothes that were stained and nasty and actually make them pure, whiter than they could have been otherwise. Again, the image here is about purifying. And so, so Jesus seeks to purify and to cleanse the people of God. That's one of the things he comes to do. In, in verse 3... We see he'll begin with the sons of Levi. 
You know what that means? That's talking about the priests. Those were the sons of Levi. They, they had led the people of Stray as the leader, spiritual leaders of this nation, uh, of the people of God. And, and they are, so they are where the working of cleansing is going to begin. But this is going to spread beyond the, the priests. It's going to spread to all the people of Israel, to the entire nation, and, and even beyond. And so while cleansing and refining may be painful, it does answer this question, right? Who can endure the day of his coming? That's the question our text is actually asking. Those who are pure can endure, which, of course, draws our attention, I hope, quickly to the gospel, which makes us pure. And we're going to come back to that before we're done here. But, but first, I want to move on to verse 5, because here in verse 5, we see not only that, God, that does God come to purify uh, but also, well, listen, listen to what the text says. It says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his ages and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, that's those who oppress them, not them, uh, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. See, our, our passage begins with this, this accusation of the arrogant Israelites against God, their father, you know, for, for, for allowing injustice. And, and they ask the Lord to bring justice to the nations, to, to judge others. But the Lord comes back and he responds. He says, listen, they're, gonna get judged. they're going to get justice. I, I'm not oblivious to what's going on. I absolutely see it and justice will come. And then he adds this little part that, that they might not have realized was coming. This includes you, Israel. You're going to see this judgment. Can you imagine, though, this? No, no, no. We mean, we mean judge them, not us. Judge them. Isn't that the way we tend to want to see justice in the world? Well, God will be a swift witness, he says. God can absolutely testify against every single one of them because he's seen it. He knows it. He's God. Here, God lists off seven specific examples of the ways that they have violated this covenant. They have violated the law of God. And here is the, here's the thing, though. Every single one of us have a list like this. Our own list is the problem with it. You see, I, I don't think anyone writes it down. That'd be really weird. Uh, but somewhere deep inside, we have this list of, of these are the really important sins. And these, I know Scripture might say that, but eh, they're not really much important. Um, they don't really matter. See, the important ones are almost always the ones we don't do or we don't struggle with, uh, the ones we don't bother ourselves with. Uh, for example, let me, let me try to put this in perspective for us from two angles. Um, you might fight against abortion, rightly. Uh, you might you know, reject promiscuity, both of which are very prominent in our culture today, and yet uh, <clears throat> you, you maybe don't notice other sins in the world. Maybe you don't notice the, the sin of greed. Maybe you don't notice systematic racism in our culture or uh, the way that, uh, that businesses are often exploiting the poorer segments of our culture, dismissing it as maybe, well, that's just business practice, right? That's how it works. And let's, let's be honest. This, this is the right-wing tendency right here. The opposite might be true as well. Maybe, maybe you'll get up and you'll march for equality and pay. You, you desire to see businesses be held accountable. To, and you get real upset when you see the government not caring for segments of the population, the needy and the poor, and, and those who can't help themselves. And, and, and yet at the same time, you reject all sexual ethics as, as though that's just an individual choice. Let people do whatever they want. That's, you know, and, and that's your view. And, and to be honest, that's, that's the left-wing tendency, right? 
And most of you probably say, I'm not right, I'm not left, I'm somewhere in the middle. And, and that's fine, but you have a list, and that's my point. See, listen, the, the coming judgment in verse 5 is for all kinds of people. All kinds of people. All races, all political affiliations, all philosophical viewpoints, all socioeconomic standings. It's for all kinds of people. So don't look at this list and think, well, well look, it says sorcerer. Am I, a, do I, am I a sorcerer? I'm not a sorcerer, so I'm good, right? No one's ever called me a sorcerer. But the chances are, somewhere in your life, you are a sorcerer. You might reject the title, right? But, but you are a sorcerer. Let me try to explain this. A, a couple of days a week, I play pickleball. If you've not played it, it's because you're young. Uh, <clears throat> it's with some guys over the lunch hour. And, and they have this phrase, you know, when someone makes some crazy shot and it goes crazy and somehow lands in uh, and, and scores a point, they'll say, hey, look who's living right. And, and that's the phrase. And what they mean is your good way of living has somehow made this ball land in right now. And so I go and I live right all the time. No. Uh, <laughs> they mean it in jest. I know they mean it in jest. Uh, but I find that there's always some belief behind these kind of statements, you know, that, that we really think we can manipulate life through right living on some level. Or maybe we think coming to church is going to make everything start to go well in our life. Or I'm giving to the poor. That's, there's this weird way that even as Christians we have this pragmatic um, karma idea that comes out in our life and if you don't believe me ask anyone who's involved in sports they're all a bunch of sorcerers all of them <laughs> um, but the rest of this too the rest of the sins in this list is closer to our hearts than we we realize see Jesus makes clear that lust in your mind is adultery in your heart he you know we, we've all lied we've all twisted the truth at some point this, this list then begins with you know the uh, the sin of not fearing God Maybe you've feared man, maybe you've ignored God, you've denied him, but you've not feared God. Really, Romans 3.23 could sum all of this up for us, right? Any, any defense we might give when, when Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And, and so then, if we really laid our own hearts bare, we'd find that we... We are the source of so much of the injustice in the world. We are, are, are the source of so much of the suffering that we see in the world one way or another. And so if we want true justice, if we truly want it, then, then we find ourselves really asking for this tidal wave of, of judgment to come crashing down uh, upon us, upon our lives as well. And so then, why, why should we have any hope of surviving in the day of judgment? And the answer is in that beautiful, beautiful statement in verse 6. In fact, we're going to look at this verse today as our last verse, and we're going to see it again next week as our first verse. It's just, it's beautiful. It says, for, the Lord, uh, for I, the Lord, God's speaking, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The faithfulness of Israel, the unfaithfulness of Israel, and the unfaithfulness of you and of me does not change who God is. It does not change His faithfulness. He remains faithful to save. He remains faithful to refine, faithful to redeem, faithful to restore all those who are His chosen people. As Ian Dugan has said, um, God delivers His people because of who He is, not because of who we are. Man, there's, good, there's confidence in that. 
That's why 2 Corinthians 1.20 teaches us all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Not me and you, in Him. In other words, the, the Lord does not change, and thus the people of God are not consumed. It's unchanging. There's a, a theological term, immutable. We read it in our affirmation of faith today. Immutable just means that, that God is unchanging over time. Uh, and, and this is important because for a perfect God to change would be to become something less than perfect. You can't be more than perfect, right? It also teaches us that, that God is consistent. He, he's not like that wishy-washer father whose response is going to be different based on the mood that he's in at any given moment. It's consistent. And, and, and so then we've, we've got to wonder, how will a faithful God preserve justice and bring the judgment that he's saying here? And, and Malachi didn't have the full answer here. He didn't have the full answer to know how God would answer this question. But what Malachi did know is that God would answer this question. He would protect and refine his people, and he would remain just. We, however, we who live after the cross, we understand what the full answer is. Yes, there is a time when Jesus will bring justice and judgment on the earth, and, and at that time, and, and that time rather, is still in the future, but, but some will be spared. Their guilty sentence uh, will be spared because of what Jesus has done for them. See, when, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, this was the ultimate act of good being called evil and evil being called good. Especially when you realize that, that there was an actual murderer, Barabbas, who was set free in order to, to keep Jesus there, to, to find him guilty. And many of you, you, you know the story. Even if you vaguely understand Christianity, you know that, that Jesus does indeed die upon the cross for the sins of his people. So if your faith is in Jesus, he died for your sins, and including all the unjust things you've, you've done to others. Including that. Which, if we're honest, should, should leave us absolutely slack jaw in shock at the mercy of God. At the love of God, at the grace of God, when, when, we, when what we really deserve is judgment. That's what we deserve. Christian, when God the Father looks upon you, he doesn't see a sorcerer. He doesn't see an adulterer, an oppressor. He doesn't see any of the other identifiable sins that we might list there. And what he sees is the perfect Lord Jesus in your place. His righteousness, his sinlessness, uh, it, you know, it, you know is, we're spared. We're spared the judgment we deserve because of that. But, but what's more is that we're not just graciously spared, but we are absolutely changed, mightily changed. Uh, Duguid again says, Jesus came to save us, not simply from the, the consequences of our sin, but also from their power. That's the ultimate goal of, uh, of the refining process in Malachi, to create a purified people who will finally be able to bring right offerings to God and serve him in righteousness. And so God changes us in the gospel. Real change occurs. And it's not just possible, but this change is expected. It's expected that we'll grow more and more like our Savior. And here's the thing. Isn't the most beautiful thing about this that, that, that to know that we are, as we know that we are safe in the arms of the Lord, and we know this, that it's not because of how much we are changing, but we know this because God never changes. And so he will be faithful to his people as he is faithful to his covenant. And Jesus is the representative of that covenant. He confirms the covenant and he seals the covenant with his own blood. We celebrate that at the Lord's table. 
This, this passage then is leading us to a very personal question. There's this question of how do I know if I will be refined in the fire of verse 3 or if God will draw near for judgment like in verse 5? Well, we know we don't get rid of our own sin. That's out of the question. Um, we don't just try harder. That's just not an option. We, we know that we, we, we can't just presume to have no sin. We do. We, we know this because of Romans 3.23, but you don't even have to ever read that. We know this from our own experience. The only answer that we have then is to, to trust in the mercy of God to purify us. You know, Malachi puts it uh, in, a, in a different way there in verse 5. We, we are to fear God. It's the same idea there. And, and so we believe God, right? Fearing God. We are, we are believing that God is. We are believing that God exists. We are, we are looking to Jesus with faith for the forgiveness of sin. And we place all of our hope in Jesus. And so every day we, we wake up and we place our hope in Jesus as our Redeemer. Let me, you know, let us be thankful that, that our God who is mighty and just also reveals to us in Lamentation 3.22, and we're going to end right here, uh, it's a beautiful passage where it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end because God is solid, never changing, always faithful to his word. Always faithful. Let us pray. When we ask for justice, Lord, we, we may not know what we, exactly what we're asking for. We may not realize that true justice will swallow up our own lives as well. So, Lord, while we do seek to do justice in our world for the sake of the oppressed and the abused, we, we ask with absolute confidence that your grace in the gospel would spread and grow and that we might rest in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And at the same time, Lord, we offer our lives to you in gratitude as a living sacrifice for the sake of your glory and the joy of your people and ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.